Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Patrick Donmoyer, author of Powwowing in Pennsylvania. Patrick Don Moyer, author of Powwowing in Pennsylvania. This book is published by the Pennsylvania German Cultural Heritage Center. What is that? The Pennsylvania German Cultural Heritage Center is a folk life museum at the Kutztown University campus. We highlight the folk traditions of the Pennsylvania Dutch, the history, the settlement of the region, and we have a one-room schoolhouse, a historic barn, and a farmhouse that help us to show all of these local traditions and their meaning and significance for the region. So it's at Kutztown University. Yes. Is there much interest in the college-age students in that type of thing? Absolutely. We have a minor in Pennsylvania German Studies, and all of the minor classes visit the Heritage Center and use the Heritage Center as an integral part of the programming. We also have interns from a variety of different majors who get field experiences in museum work at the Heritage Center, and uh, it's really a unique experience, unlike anything else you would find within the state system in, in Pennsylvania. Is it like a museum? People can go and visit it? And look yes, we, we ask uh, for folks to contact us in advance for tours. We're open by appointment for tours, but we are open uh, for research. We have a research library that's open from 8 o'clock until 4 every day for business hours, and folks come in do genealogical research and everything else, but for students at Kutztown and for faculty members, we do everything we can to make sure that the site is available to them for classes and for research projects and other kinds of hands-on work as well. Did you grow up in a Pennsylvania Dutch family? Yes. Um, I'm going to temper that statement by saying that we were very much like every other American family. But I recall, as a child, there were many different aspects of my experience that led me to be aware of the fact that I was Pennsylvania Dutch. And uh, this is the fact that my grandfather spoke a little dialect, um, the fact that um, I heard many different types of stories that have a cultural flair to them. Um, some of my great-grandparents grew up uh, on farms. And uh, the interesting thing about that is that um, in present-day culture in Pennsylvania, many people who have Pennsylvania Dutch ancestry won't say that they're Pennsylvania Dutch. They'll say, oh, my grandparents are Pennsylvania Dutch. I'm a person who grew up with that awareness and an appreciation for that. Um, and uh, yes, I consider myself Pennsylvania Dutch, even though that might look different than what it might have looked like 50, 60 years ago. What kind of traditions did your family have that, that made you feel like you were Pennsylvania Dutch? Well, things like pork and sauerkraut on New Year's, you grow up with that and you think that's just normal, that everybody does that. Um, potato filling, for instance, a very common southeastern Pennsylvania and central Pennsylvania thing, but you go two counties over and people don't even know about it. Um, in fact, west of the Susquehanna, you find it even less and less. Um, so these types of foods are things that you find. I lived in southern York County for a little while, too, and was introduced to other things that my Lebanon County background did not have. For instance, in York County, um, people eat hog maw. Um, pig stomach. Um, this is a, a staple, a very common thing among Pennsylvania Dutch families, even in Berks and parts of Lebanon, but I had never experienced that as a kid. So 
Um, I lived in a couple different counties. My father's a Lutheran minister. Um, the Lutheran churches have a very strong Pennsylvania Dutch connection in this area as well. And so I feel growing up, I really got a good opportunity to see um, southeastern and south central Pennsylvania communities and have a strong awareness of my roots. So you said, your, was it your grandfather spoke the dialect? Yes, my, my grandfather, um, he was one of the only um, of my grandparents who spoke the dialect um, and had learned some of it in the home. It was probably not his first language, but he really actively sought to use the language. And later in life, when he was retired, he took classes to help refresh using the language as well. And uh, that's how I learned the dialect, because I speak Pennsylvania Dutch as well. Um, with the research that I do and the outreach that I do in the community, it's absolutely essential, especially in Berks County, to be able to speak the dialect. And uh, my grandfather used to speak it when I was a kid, and he would usually say things to me like behave yourself, he would say gebacht or shik dich, um, meaning behave yourself, conduct yourself, um, things like that. Um, but those are things that contribute to an awareness that I was Pennsylvania Dutch. You have a practical application for knowing how to speak Pennsylvania Dutch? Oh, absolutely. In Quitstown, a large number of people still speak the dialect, especially people who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, and many of these people are really important in our community because they're the bearers of tradition. Um, when you talk about farming, when you talk about, um, you know, for instance, domestic traditions, cooking, dialect is interwoven into all of those narratives. And there are many people that when you can say a few dialect words, or like I can, have a conversation in the dialect, people are much more willing to open up. It creates an immediate sense of solidarity, a sense of, of uh, community is immediately established when people use the dialect. Um, for some, it's a nostalgic language, so it brings back memories. And in the line of work that I do with preserving local culture, um, it's absolutely essential. Now, you said when you find people in their 60s and 70s, that you'll find people who speak that. But are, will you find people in their 30s and 40s or in their 20s who speak it? In certain parts of the community, yes. In the Kutztown area, for instance, we have a robust Mennonite community. Um, among the Mennonites, we have a lot of young people who speak the dialect. That's I was speaking old order. to those are old order Mennonites, mm -hmm. uh, horse and buggy Mennonites. Um, the interesting thing is, in my own community, the average age for a speaker is 70 years old. The average age, I'm told, among the Mennonites is 17 because, of course, they have big families. Um, their population is apparently doubling every 25 years statistically. They're, they're doing very well, and all of the people within that community are going to be learning the dialect as their first language in the home. But you said at Kutztown they teach uh, Pennsylvania Dutch? We do teach Pennsylvania Dutch So you have college-age students yes. who are studying it? And there are a fair number of these. Um, I can say maybe about half a dozen, so not a lot. But a fair number of these students that come through and really dedicate themselves to it actually have the ability to learn to use the language conversationally. And it's only a two-semester course, um, so it's a very comprehensive class. It's unlike anything you'll find in most parts of the United States. I think there are a couple other classes you can take in Pennsylvania Dutch at the University of Wisconsin. Um, but aside from that, you're not really going to find many opportunities on a college level to learn the dialect. Are there online resources? Can you buy language? Discs, the language yes, lesson there are tapes. many different places that you can find. For instance, uh, Pennsylvania Dutch 101 on YouTube.com is actually one place you can learn. A colleague of mine does online classes so that they're free and available to anybody. Um, so there are many different people who are out there doing this kind of work in a variety of different communities. Some are producing children's books, some are producing adult education materials. And these are especially the most important for the portion of the Pennsylvania Dutch for which the language has declined. 
And you know, originally, when you're talking about the Pennsylvania Dutch, you're talking about two communities. You, you have the old order um, Amish and Mennonites, and then you have the rest of the Pennsylvania Dutch that formerly were identified primarily as church people from the Lutheran and Reform backgrounds. It's this population of people that the language has declined, and this is the target audience for many of these language uh, preservation materials. Now, we haven't talked about your book yet. Yeah. The, the book has the title Powwowing in Pennsylvania, and powwowing is often thought about as a, a Native American thing. What is Pennsylvania Dutch powwowing? Well, this is a ritual tradition among the Pennsylvania Dutch that is used primarily for healing, for spiritual protection, and for assurance of positive outcomes in everyday life. What you find is that in many folk cultures all across the world, there are all kinds of subtle ways that people blend symbolic behaviors in with the fabric of everyday life to produce some really compelling narratives about their cultural attitudes and a variety of other things. For the Pennsylvania Dutch, this practice was originally known as braucherei, and braucherei literally means customs, traditions, rituals. But as early as the 18th century, the Pennsylvania Dutch were not an isolated community. They had neighbors who were speaking English, and their English-speaking neighbors assigned this word powwow or powwowing to the tradition, primarily because the first waves of people to reach the shores of North America in New England first encountered Algonquin tribes for whom healers were known as a powwow. So this word powwow was originally a word for a healer. It was also a verb to imply a person who was going to be conducting a ritual for healing purposes. This word had somewhat of a negative connotation when English speakers used it which is unfortunate because it describes these robust um, traditions among the Native Americans, but the word was somewhat misappropriated and used among the Pennsylvania Dutch to describe the ritual traditions of the Pennsylvania Dutch because they seemed foreign and unusual to English-speaking audiences. And the word stuck and some of the earliest documentation of it is from the late 18th century. So no, we know fairly early on this term was being used to describe the Pennsylvania Dutch traditions. Is it used they are by not. Pennsylvania Dutch? Eventually, they yes. They use it themselves? And, and by Pennsylvania Dutch people who spoke English or wrote in English. Um, and what you're going to find is that this has led to the misperception that these traditions are Native American, when in fact there's something that was directly imported from Europe, went through a variety of changes here in North America, um, but became something that was very distinctly North American in flavor over time. So if somebody practiced one of these, what does it look like? What, what unfolds? Well, it depends on how it's being used. Um, for instance, there are many folks who are still living in the community today who recall being powwowed as children. And oftentimes these are for childhood ailments and things like that. Um, for colic, for instance, if babies cry too much and they are thought to be colicky. In Pennsylvania Dutch, they would say, des kind is all gewaxa, and that means the child is grown fast. And what they would typically do is apply a form of light massage over the sides of the child while repeating a prayer. And the prayers are very diverse, but they're often in either standard German language or they're in Pennsylvania Dutch, reflecting that both languages were being used in this area. Standard German is more of a literary tradition in this area, was used as an official language, and the dialect was what people were speaking in the home, Pennsylvania Dutch language. Um, and typically what you'll find is that many people remember these types of traditions being done as children. And I interviewed my great aunts at one point in time about some practices that my great-grandmother was doing when she um, lived on Hill Street in Lebanon City. She lived down the street from a man who actually employed powwowing as kind of a primary preoccupation in his retirement. He was well known locally as a very important healer. And 
I was told that in the early 1900s and the 20s and even up until the 30s, people would arrive at his house and there were more people than he could possibly treat at one time. So he would send all the children over to my great-grandmother who used a little bit of oil and she would rub along the sides of the child and repeat a prayer. And one of the most common ones that was used in this area is they would say, Algavaxa, Algavaxa, Gavek von meinem Kinsai Rip, Yushtvi de Grishtus, Alsam Grip Gaganga Is. And this is repeated three times and then would invoke, Imnoma Gat Fada, Zu and Heilig Geist, Amen. Um, and this prayer says, liver groan, liver groan, or colic, colic. Liver groan is one of the terms that was used for this illness. Colic, colic, go away from my child's ribs, just as Christ grew up and got out of the crib. And so many times you'll find that these prayers will be poetic in orientation. They'll express ideas from religious, primarily biblical tradition. Historial is what some people refer to it as when you have these types of biblical narratives playing out in a poetic context like this. And the idea is that some form of comparison is being made to these sacred concepts and what was expected to happen for the person. I always think of ritual as being an opportunity to see the way in which people engage in symbolic behaviors, dialogue, um, and exchanges as a way to try to create some form of tangible change. And healing is a great example of that because you're, you're asking for the illness to depart. In this case, they're asking for colic to depart just like Christ got up and grew up and left the crib to go on to do good work. And these are rooted in a lot of Christian attitudes in so this area. So this thing is seen as a religious ritual as opposed to kind of a dark arts? Yes, absolutely. Um, among most Pennsylvania Dutch people, um, especially those within the Lutheran and Reformed backgrounds who would have been the primary bearers of this tradition, they saw this as being part of their religious piety, part of their expression of how they were internalizing Christian notions. Um, my great-grandmother, for instance, was deeply devoutly Christian, um, and the folks who were doing this saw this as a form of um, religious care for other people. Um, they didn't accept payment for it. This was something that they did purely as an act of kindness for another purpose, uh, another person, and usually this was done in a very culturally specific way. Um, this may not look like the kinds of religious rituals you would see in a church or the types of things that you would see in sanctioned religious settings. But instead, this is typically what you're going to see playing out in the home, playing out on the farm, and a variety of other settings as well. Now, when you mention this idea of dark arts, oftentimes powwowing was being employed as a way for people to find a, a form of recourse to deal with Percepted, uh, perceptions of things like curses or negative interactions with people, and that would be considered dark arts, those curses or negative interactions. It was the job of the powwower to provide a sense of relief, care, and healing for those people who felt that they had fallen victim, in a sense, to, to something more sinister. How was this perceived by the local clergy? Well, in two ways. You find that there were some ministers who were opposed to it, and many times they had to temper that with the fact that their congregation members were going to be actively participating in these kinds of traditions on a regular basis. So they would speak out sometimes, and sometimes they would not speak out at all because they recognized that it was culturally specific, it was unique to these communities, even though it may not fall in line with certain forms of Christian theology. We also find in some cases that there were actually ministers who endorsed it and practiced it, although, generally speaking, they were very quiet 
debate about that because of the fact that, um, generally speaking, the, the church hierarchies, uh, both Lutheran and Reformed, were somewhat intolerant of this kind of thing. If a person had openly espoused this from a pulpit, that would have been a problem. But if they would quietly um, participate in these types of rituals or tolerate them among the, uh, the congregation members, there was really not much of an issue. You say in your book that in 2006, you had the opportunity to learn to powwow from a traditional practitioner living just north of Kutztown. Everything had to be memorized. Absolutely. First of all, how did you gain the trust of someone in order for them to impart this to you? Well, this is always an interesting equation. What you find is that many people who powwow are actually, they're somewhat interested in the idea of someone learning from them. They're not going to withhold. Um, in fact, many people learn specifically with the notion that they would pass it on to someone else and keep this process alive. So in, in many cases, um, you'll find that this is something that people are willing to impart. I established a relationship with someone who was willing to pass this information along to me. Um, they were also a speaker of the dialect. Some of our exchanges were in both English and in Pennsylvania Dutch. The things that I was memorizing were primarily in I would say a blending of Pennsylvania Dutch and Standard German with some English as well. And the explanations for how these types of prayers or rituals to were, were to be employed were oftentimes explained in English, but with some flavor of Pennsylvania Dutch. Um, many of the different things that I was learning were very distinct in terms of how people consider the health of the human body to be related to one's spiritual condition. And so all of the parts of the body that are treated, and typically this is with prayers, or um, the use of hands. People will usually many times draw hands over the body to remove illness. These types of gestures and motions are um, essentially serving as a, a vehicle for the removal of illness, and these are learned in particular patterns and rounds. So I had to start by memorizing these types of things. I learned the words first, followed by all the individual hand expressions and motions. Everything is timed, and many times you'll find that um, there are specific directions of orientation. A person who is receiving powwow healing typically faces east. The practitioner typically moves clockwise around them while they're sitting in a chair. Um, and oftentimes will go over the body from head to toe, usually starting from the top and working their way down and working clockwise around the person from front to back. And many times what you're gonna find that there are specific prayers for each individual part of the body or certain blessings that are specific to certain ailments. How much stuff did you have to memorize? Well, it was about, um, for me, it was uh, almost a dozen prayers. Um, the motions are things that you learn by doing. So one of the things that I um, was willing to do in this situation was to be powwowed myself as a way to experience this. But then also, um, my, my teacher um, expected me then to powwow her as a way of being able to show that I was proficient and to show the things that I was learning. So these are all things that are, are basically traditional formats that you're gonna find for learning in this area. Um, for those people over time who learn, typically it's passed from a man to a woman or a woman to a man. If it's passed in a family, a lot of times it skips a generation. Um, that's not prescriptive, that's not necessary, but oftentimes you find a grandmother will teach a grandson or a grandfather will teach a granddaughter. But in the general community, you often find a man will teach a woman and a woman will teach a man. And part of this is that it builds bonds of trust and bonds of community. I don't think that many people who practice powwowing would always necessarily be 
worried about the specifics of why things are done a certain way. Many times it's that's the way you do it and that's the way that it works. But we can see, if we step back from some of these traditions for a moment, we can see that when you have both men and women interacting with one another, um, women teaching men, men teaching women, there is a sense of equality um, that's implicit within these practices. Oh, this is done by both both genders, absolutely. Um, there are occasions where you historically find that maybe a father will teach a son or there will be some sort of a, a male line, but that's not always looked upon favorably. Um, I do know of um, one example I, I cite from my book, uh, um, three generations of women healers from um, the uh, 19th century and early 20th century in Reading, Pennsylvania. Um, many folks perceived that mother taught daughter and so on and so forth, but usually they taught, the mother would teach the husband of the daughter so that it could continue the, the line from a man to a woman and so on and so forth. Um, this is very important to people um, locally, even though many people when you ask them, why, why is that the case? They might say, well, I, I don't exactly know. But, I believe it also has something to do with humbleness um, in the sense that um, it doesn't allow people who maybe have sexist leanings or maybe someone who can't cooperate with others, um, they would be considered unfit to learn. Um, so oftentimes these types of traditions are passed by word of mouth and memorized from one gender to the next. You said your, your rituals all had to be memorized, but mm -hmm. uh, were there books that people had? And did individuals have kind of their own handwritten Absolutely. The majority of what you find today among people who are still actively employing some of these rituals, um, usually things are memorized. But you'll also find that um, there is this whole corpus of literature that has developed over the years, and it has somewhat of a relationship with the oral traditions. Now, when I was taught the oral tradition, I was, I was taught not to write it down. Um, but it's clear that over the generations, many people have kept private notebooks for private references. Um, some of the things I highlight in my book, for instance, are examples of these from you know, the 1770s. Um, some of these are even brought across the ocean by original immigrants coming from German-speaking lands to Pennsylvania. Um, so it's clear that people were writing things down and there are also printed traditions, and the printed traditions are found on both sides of the Atlantic. You'll find um, examples of these types of rituals appearing in books on, you know, in, in German and Swiss sources. You'll also find them in Austrian sources and then also in Pennsylvania sources, Ohio, and uh, occasionally in other areas as well. Um, but the books that were printed were often surrounded with an air of controversy because of the fact that you were learning essentially from a book as opposed to another person. You can see how this might be very different from the types of communal bonds that are expressed from learning powwowing by word of mouth from one person to the next. So learning from a book allowed you to be able to learn without having to have direct human interactions. Um, not to say that people who learned from books were ineffective or anything like that, or that they were um, you know, somehow viewed negatively, but it was definitely not thought of as being a favorable thing to bypass the face-to-face -face interactions and work with a book instead. And some books, one in particular, um, are sometimes considered controversial. Um, I should say not even one. There's several different books that are considered controversial. One, for instance, that is kind of the foremost powwowing manual, so to speak, um, was compiled in 1819 and printed uh, in 1820 in Reading, Pennsylvania. Um, the person who compiled it, his name was John George Homan. 
and he was a practitioner himself who has all sorts of testimonials in his book about how his work um, was something really important to pass on. And he thought that by putting it in a book form, he was going to release it to the public and for the good of other people. Um, he also indicates in his book that some people objected to his idea of writing this stuff down, and even his own wife objected to this, and his wife is one of the people who recurs over and over in his testimonials in the earlier um, examples of the healing. So we always wonder, did his wife teach him, and then did he you know, go and print this stuff against her wishes? We don't know. We don't really know the backstory, but he was a controversial fellow. Some people liked him. Um, he sometimes threatened lawsuits against people who would, um, you know, in any way, shape, or form claim that his, his works were not effective or that his testimonials were false. So he was a, somewhat of a controversial and, and uh, um, explosive person at times. Um, he'd write editorials in the newspaper too, sometimes denouncing adversaries or people he didn't like in the publishing industry. So he was a controversial person. Um, people look at his book kind of with two perspective. Sometimes it's with a sense of ambivalence and wondering about, yeah, is this really something we should be looking at or not based on who he was as a character? And then some people also um, really like his work because it provided the means for this stuff to be continued from one generation to the next, even if it's not remembered as part of an oral tradition. And the book that he wrote was Der Lange Verborgene Freund, which literally means the long hidden friend um, or long concealed friend. Um, but the English edition was the long lost friend. And that was, there were two translations. Um, one was coming out of Harrisburg and uh, it was the most popular edition and it was called the long lost friend. Now you have one reprinted in the back of your book, Soli Deo Gloria. Yes. Dr. Helfenstein's Secret of Sympathy. Yes. Uh, translated by you. Now, Absolutely. What's, what's the significance of well, that? Well, this is another um, book that's not quite as widely known. Um, in Northumberland and Schuylkill counties, parts of northern Dauphin, um, you find that there's a high concentration of people who are aware of this other book that was collected, um, put together essentially from oral sources. It alleges to be by an author by the name of Georg Friedrich Helfenstein. And Helfenstein is a common name up in the coal regions and a little bit north of that um, because there were ministers in the Reformed Church and one Lutheran um, who bore this name Helfenstein. And it would have been a name that people would have had a sense of familiarity with. We believe that Georg Friedrich was probably a pseudonym that somebody else adopted. We don't know if they're related to that line of clergy or not. Um, but essentially, he put together this book that had um, an interesting format. Every page could be pulled out of the book. It was never bound. Um, there are bound copies that people bound later, but typically they were individual sheets of paper that were numbered that had cures for particular ailments, and it's broken into three different chapters, those ailments specifically for humans, those specifically for um, livestock and for cattle, and then those that were only to be used in emergencies that dealt with other kinds of situations, like if a person perceived that they were cursed, how to be able to reverse a curse, or how to get a thief to return stolen property. This is another common uh, ritual. And so his book um, was originally titled Soli Deo Gloria, which was often used in religious works. Um, it was something you'd see primarily on Lutheran and Reform books in Latin, which meant glory to God alone, meaning that a particular work or book or something was produced um, for the glory of God and not for personal gain. And so his book from the very beginning almost seems 
kind of contrary to Holman's work, John George Holman being the author of The Long Lost Friend. Um, Helfenstein's book tended to really push this idea that this was just meant for helping other people and not meant for profit or anything else. Holman, on the other hand, said, I'm a poor person who could probably use a little financial assistance. Maybe you can buy my books and help me out in addition to helping other people out. Um, Helfenstein claims that his book was underwritten by some benefactor. And so it was, it was able to be sold at almost nothing, um, far less than what it was meant for. And so there's legendary characters associated with this as well because Helfenstein believed that, or I should say, the character put forth the notion that he had been a, um, a clinical doctor in Europe. He had been trained at a university and uh, was also a devout Christian, but that he had had this visitation on the way to go see a, uh, a patient, and we don't know if the visitation was an angel or what, but he describes him as a gray man who stops him on the way to go visit a, uh, a patient's house where the patient had a sprained ankle, and the gray man tells him, that you can turn around because it's already been taken care of and alludes to the idea that some form of religious healing has taken place. And Helfenstein is skeptical and goes on and finds that indeed that was the case, that the gray man had appeared also to this person. And so there's this legendary aspect of the Helfenstein book. And it's not been available before in English in any you know kind of widely circulated format. There were abridged versions that were sometimes handed out as pamphlets, um, but the entire original edition um, is something that's not been available before in both German and in English. And so this, this, um, this book also highlights um, and gives the opportunity for people to look at these primary sources. My hope with this book was to give as many opportunities for people to engage the primary sources themselves. You don't want to just hear what I have to say about it, but you want to have the ability to engage um, original manuscripts, books like Dr. Helfenstein's book, um, Holman's book, um, ritual objects, and other kinds of things as a way to really um, capture a broader picture of the ritual practices and well, a broad spectrum of traditions. One example you have in here is to stop blood, thou must call the baptismal name for whom thou triest and say the following words nine times, and you have, have a, a prayer beyond that. Mm -hmm. So, um, I have to ask you, you have a lot of examples of practical, mm -hmm. uh, of the actual ritual in here, and you have one I want to ask you about. So that no witch nor spirit may harm thy property, take rue, bread, salt, and oaken coals, bore a hole in the door sill where the cattle go in and out, and put the powder into a rag and stuff it into the hole with the tine of a harrow, thus will the cattle be safe. Yes. Where'd you find that one? Well, this one is echoed in a lot of different sources. In fact, I found it in some Swiss sources from Vienna, some European examples. Um, you also see a variation of that in Helfenstein as well. Um, you'll also see another variation in Holman's book. And this is really interesting to me because this idea of making bundles of herbs, especially things like rue um, and coals and things like that, are echoes of Roman Catholic traditions from the Middle Ages. There was a whole tradition associated with keeping people spiritually safe from those that may wish them some form of spiritual harm, either those who would be considered witches or other things like that, um, but also um, from the supernatural, from spirits and things like that. In the Middle Ages, oftentimes, there were certain herbs that the clergy or exorcists would burn as a means to purify an area. Um, many times they would also apply um, bundles or bags of these types of herbs onto a person or into a space where the person lives. Um, 
the, uh, the oak and coals in that example that you read as well um, are also showing that these types of things had been burned. Um, these are all echoes of earlier traditions that you find that were originally officially sanctioned traditions among Roman Catholics. And at one point in time, Roman Catholicism was the bulk of Christianity. So these are then traditions that many different denominations over long periods of times essentially have been inheritors of portions of these, even though they are considered outmoded. Most people do not remember that these traditions are the case. But if you study any of the ritual traditions of the Middle Ages, you find a tremendous amount in common. Um, for instance, if a person was also being exorcised, and we have to remember, exorcism was part of liturgical tradition. Every child that was baptized was exorcised. Um, the minister, for instance, would make the sign of the cross over all of the eyes, nose holes, mouth, and ears of a child. They would anoint them with oil as well as spittle. They would cast out the devil. This was common Middle Ages baptism, and only some denominations have maintained certain portions of that today. Baptism looks very different for many other denominations, but when you see these types of things happening, anointing with oil, anointing with spittle, they even put salt that had been consecrated into the infant's mouth. These were common Middle Ages uh, liturgical practices, and for instance, things like salt, which was also in this recipe that you read, appears uh, in powwowing as well as something to neutralize evil or to repel anyone wishing spiritual harm, you can see that these types of things are actually echoes. And the use of it for cattle in particular is part of Roman Catholic traditions that were used for blessing not just human beings, but for livestock. Um, a number of different um, saints had practices um, associated with livestock. Um, St. Leonard, for instance, patron saint of horses and other livestock. On St. Leonard's Day, people would take votive images of their horses to church, have them blessed, and then take them to the barnyard and put them in the church in Europe. Here in Pennsylvania, they never really quite got into the votives, but what you do find is that the powwower would then visit the barnyard and then bless the cattle sometimes, or people would take ashes from the wood stove, and on Ash Wednesday, they would sprinkle the ashes across the livestock um, as, a, as a form of essentially consecrating the cattle, much the same way that a minister might make the sign of the cross on the forehead of a, uh, a congregation member with ashes on Ash Wednesday. So you can see a borrowing of these liturgical traditions. Was, was any of this in Europe in the Middle Ages seen as witchcraft? The things that I'm describing were actually the things that were used by those who saw themselves as being on the side of Christianity. Um, what you will find is that many times the narratives that are associated with clergy who were opposing certain types of witchcraft practices, many times they would talk about people's behavior and things that they would show signs of having been spiritually affected by a curse or a witch or something like that. Even Martin Luther talks about this in Martin Luther's Table Talks. Um, this is a publication where Martin Luther's students, they cataloged all these different conversations that Martin Luther had over the time that he was um, the reformer. And the interesting thing was um, he talked about a woman that used to curse people by stealing dirt from their footprints. And she would take that dirt. If someone walked, for instance, down a, down a path in, in the city or rurally, she would take dirt from their footprints and then use that to curse someone. Um, these types of practices are also well documented. And it was usually the job of either an exorcist or a priest, if you were a Roman Catholic, a Protestant minister, or in some cases, a folk practitioner in Europe as well, would have been responsible for helping to undo these kinds of spiritual entanglements. Because the belief ultimately was that if a person wished you ill, they had the ability to affect your life. 
And that's part of what's implicit with, with powwowing, is that if a person wishes you well, they can heal you. And the idea is, too, that there's this other side, that if a person wishes you ill, it would then be the job of the powwower to uh, be able to undo that. You write about uh, a chapter on hexerai and mm -hmm. ritual charm, cursing, hexing, sorcery. And you say it is generally accepted among the Pennsylvania Dutch that hexerai describes mercenary ritual practices used for harm, revenge, monetary remuneration, personal gain, or control of another person. And it's diametrically opposed to braucherai. So, did you find examples of it being used? Well, I found a lot of people who have perceived that someone else has harmed them spiritually. And uh, this is something that is, it's controversial, but there are still attitudes about this today in the present day. What I have found is that over time, attitudes have changed. Um, in the Middle Ages, for instance, the notion that um, witches were rampant was a common thing. We see this from the time of the Inquisition as being um, a common perception. By the time that people were coming to Pennsylvania, they were essentially fleeing a, uh, um, a nation that had been torn apart by war and also by the Inquisition. So they weren't readily interested in, in bringing those perceptions exactly as they were in Europe over here to Pennsylvania. But this notion that people would harm others, um, either intentionally as, say, a witch, or unintentionally, just as a person holding a grudge. These two ideas are both expressions of what you've described as hexerai uh, and read from the opening chapter on hexerai in my book. Um, this, again, is a controversial thing, but many people today oftentimes believe that something has affected their health in terms of interactions with another person. And more often than not, the perception is that a grudge, that someone has begrudged someone, and that has caused a family injury, or the notion that a person maybe over many generations has been subject to some form of a curse. I also know of people who claim to have been directly cursed by someone who said so. Um, so the perception is that these people may have been some form of dark practitioner. Um, but the, the side of hexerai that I explore in my book is that this isn't just certain figures within a community, marginal figures who would do these acts of, of essentially spiritual violence to someone else. This is just anybody who wishes, wishes harm on someone else um, could participate in something like that knowingly or unknowingly. The job of the practitioner was not to, of powwow, the practitioner of powwow was not to um, harm the practitioner of hexerai or to punish the person who accidentally laid accidentally laid a curse. Um, instead, their job was to neutralize its effects on the person. That was one way of doing it. So typically this would be blessings. There were some people that were kind of marginal figures that were referred to as hex doctors, and they specialized specifically in removing a hex, which is a curse, or some form of spiritual illness that was put in place by a practitioner of hexerai. And those people, in general, walked a very different line than the powwowers in the sense that oftentimes they were willing to turn the curse around onto the person who had laid it. Now, if this person intentionally laid a curse, we could see that as just harm being returned to someone. But if someone wished ill against someone else but didn't do so in a, in a way that was cognizant or intentional, um, then returning that curse to them would also be a form of cursing. So generally speaking, those who would practice powwow or brauche, they would be people who would stay away from that kind of curse reversal um, because it was seen in and of itself as, as an act of violence to do so. Instead, the idea was to focus on the health and healing and restoration of, of wholeness to the person uh, who was afflicted. Did uh, hex signs that were put up on barns, were they really thought to be warding off hexes? Yes and no. 
I'm going to say no to start because historically in this area, they were not associated with hexerai. The term hexine developed in the 20th century, and this was a term that was adopted by a particular travel writer from New England who was not of the community, who claimed that he heard from one informant that there was this mysterious mark put on barns called a hexafus, which means witch's foot. We know today that this was a carved mark that looked like the upright foot of a goose that was typically put inside a barn specifically for the purpose of protection. So he kind of mistook the hex signs on the barns, the barn stars, if we shall call them that, as some people have decided to call them today. Um, barn stars um, were being confused with this other ritual tradition. Hex sign is a phrase that's out of fashion now? Well, it depends on who you talk to. Um, all across the United States, many people will recognize hex sign as being the term for the decorative designs that you find on barns. Many of those people will believe that they were put there specifically to protect from witches. That story seems to come from this travel writer from New England, Wallace Nutting, in 1924. He was the first person to really explore these ideas. Prior to that, the writers from all over the United States were writing about the stars on barns, and they didn't call them hex signs. So he coined this term um, and really clinched the association with hexerai. On the other hand, among most people in the Dutch country, they will think about these designs as being decorative and then also perhaps being some form of a blessing but in a general sense, um, the same way that you would find a house blessing put on a house where there might be some form of decorative emblem, sometimes a star, and the names of the people who uh, originally built the house or the, uh, the founding family, things like that. So you can see that this is part of um, a social ritual as well, putting these on a barn, even if they may not have had the kinds of ritual backing as you would see with powwowing. We never found powwowers who were doing this in the 19th century. It just wasn't talked about. It never really happened. Um, we find a lot of documentation and 19th century practices, and surprisingly, nothing pertaining to putting stars on barns. We do, however, have documentation of artists putting them on barns. Well, you have pictures in your book of crosses, like three mm -hmm. crosses exactly. over each window. Well, that's, that's part of another European tradition. Um, people would put different types of things on architectural structures for blessing. And one of the old Roman Catholic and Eastern European traditions was to put um, the initials of the three kings at the Feast of Epiphany, on January 6th, you're supposed to put CMB for Caspar, Melchior, Balthasar, and three crosses on your front door. And sometimes this was actually done with chalk that had been taken to a Catholic or Eastern Orthodox church and blessed by a priest. Now, among the Protestants, they didn't really do that. They didn't bless chalk and then give it out to their parishioners. So instead, these types of practices oftentimes took different forms. Um, people would do it themselves. Um, Protestantism was all about emphasizing this notion of the priesthood of all believers, that every person was equal in the sides of God. So the idea um, that if a person um, was carrying on a ritual tradition in the home, that they had the authority to do that. They didn't need the sanctioning from the clergy, per se. Um, so you find these types of earlier traditions um, that are European in nature also coming into Pennsylvania. And you find three crosses on barns. We don't usually find CM but we do find CMB in written blessings that were sometimes carried on people or sometimes hung in the home or concealed within the home. Who was uh, Mountain Mary? Mountain Mary is a, a controversial figure. Some people say she wasn't a powwower at all, um, but believe it or not, she was a first-generation immigrant from what is today Germany, um, a German-speaking immigrant who arrived at the Port of Philadelphia, and there is very little that is actually known about the biographical details of her life. The documents that we actually have about her are from around the time of her death. 
there were romantic stories told about how she was this person who arrived in the new world and her family died and then she married a young man who was then conscripted into the, uh, the military uh, to serve in the revolution and then who also died. And so this sad widow went into the hills in the Ole Valley uh, in southern Berks County and uh, practiced healing and did so with a devout heart and was known to be legendary for her healing acts um, and even recorded in poetry from around the time of her death when she died in 1819. Um, her homestead is still a site that sometimes people will visit. I take people there every once in a while where she has her grave. It's unmarked except for a stone that has no writing on it whatsoever. There's a, uh, an eastern cedar tree growing over her property, a juniper, and uh, a little stone wall enclosure, and people will go visit her grave to pay their respects to this person that is considered to be the forebearer of these traditions. Now, at the time that she passed away, um, no one was calling her a powwower. But within just a generation after her time, all the stories started to come out that she was a powwower and that she would pray for people to heal for them. And at the point in time that she passed away, when people wrote about healing traditions, they all weren't always specific about what kind of healing was taking place. Um, so many times, if they talk about a person as healing with herbs or other things like that, um, these could be indications that they might be practicing things that might be considered clinical for the time, as well as those things that might be along the lines of folk medicine. Um, but Mountain Mary was considered by many people um, to be uh, the forebearer, and many, many practitioners claim that she's part of their lineage. Um, and you find their documentation of this in York County, you also find this in parts of Berks, where I know of some people today who claim that um, Mountain Mary taught someone who taught someone else, and after generations of being passed on, it's here today. Um, so for many people, she is this legendary, almost quasi-saintly figure um, that people uh, pay respects to, much in the same way that you would see the, uh, the relics of the saints in Europe being uh, uh, venerated by local people as a form of devotions. People also venerated Mountain Mary. You also write about a William Reppert, whose yeah, draft yeah. card, was it World War II, listed his occupation as faith healer. Yes. And that's as late as World War II. Yeah, and I wasn't sure if you were going to bring him up or not, but he was actually the man that I mentioned towards the beginning of our discussion today that lived right down the street from my great-grandmother. Um, and uh, he's just one of a number of people um, who actually either listed faith healer, which is what he listed his, his uh, occupation as, or powwower or powwow doctor, you'll find these types of things turning up in census records, in public documentation, you'll find it in court trials, newspaper articles, there are very many sources, public documents that are available today that show that people were not just doing this behind closed doors, this was part of how people were living their daily lives. And uh, when you talk to people in Berks and Lehigh counties today about these traditions, they remember some of these people um, who maybe did it on a semi-professional basis. So you can make a living at it? Well, the problem with it is that typically people would not accept payment. You were not supposed to prescribe a particular um, fee schedule for healing. This was seen as the work of the divine. The practitioner was considered to be a person who was acting under the auspices of the work of God, so to speak, as a, as a conduit for spiritual healing. And uh, this is not something you could put a price on. So um, in many ways, they served as a, almost like a lay minister, as, a, as, a, you know, as kind of a, a lay practitioner, so to speak. Um, but those who managed to eke out a living doing this usually survived by means of one of two things. Either 
they would suggest that people could give a donation, and there would be a basket by the door, which is what they used to say about uh, William Reppert. I've heard a couple people say, oh, there was a basket that you, would, you could just put a little money in if you wanted to. You didn't have to, but you could. Um, you'll also find other situations where um, powwow doctors are making some form of blessing, something that would be written, um, something that might take time or materials, and they would charge for those kinds of things. So a written blessing might be something that a person might charge for because of the effort that goes into it. Um, one practitioner named Dr. Hageman, he was listed not as a faith healer in the census, but as a doctor. Um, Dr. Hageman was uh, Joseph... Um, Joseph H. Hageman from uh, Reading from around the turn of the, uh, the century, from around 1900. Uh, he was actively um, selling these little blessings for about a dollar, sometimes as little as 25 cents. Um, and these were the kinds of things that people would pin under their shirt specifically for healing. And uh, he would charge a little money for those. Um, but it's not clear that he had a set fee schedule either. How did the medical community perceive this? In two different ways. Um, on one hand, you find doctors that were openly outspoken. They felt as though if these types of traditions were to prevail in cases of dire emergency or, or extreme illness, that a person could die if they didn't seek conventional treatment. And this is the story you hear very often in mainstream media in the, in the 20th century. Um, and you hear this not just about powwowing, but about any form of alternative medicine, that you should go to a doctor because you might, it might be detrimental to your health if you don't. Um, not because a powwow is going to hurt you, because they're going to essentially pray over you and run their hands over your body, and that's about it. Or give you something to put on your body, like a, a bundle of herbs or a, uh, um, you know, a written blessing. So there's nothing they're going to do to harm you. Um, but doctors felt as though the absence of certain types of conventional treatment might cause problems. But you'll also find that there were doctors who also powwowed. Um, one good example is a, a gentleman that people still remember in the greater Kutztown area. His name was Dr. Stanley Brunner. And he lived in Crumsville, just a little bit north of Kutztown. And he was a conventional doctor and a trained medical professional. He compounded some of his own medicines and also was a dentist and a powwower. Um, he didn't advertise that he was a powwower, but he had a shingle out front that said that he was a doctor and he would make house calls, he delivered babies. He was a, he was a conventional medicine uh, practitioner. But the fact is um, that for things that people sought medical assistance for, that were sometimes very culturally specific, like colic. Most doctors will tell you there's not a lot you can actually do for colic. Parents who have a colicky baby kind of have to deal with interrupted sleep for a while because the infant might just really carry on for six weeks or more. Um, someone like Dr. Stanley Brunner might give you an alternative. He might, he might powwow your child. He also was known for getting rid of warts, and this is by far one of the most common ailments that anybody would be powwowed for. Um, adults and children alike. Um, if you had a wart, typically you would rub a potato on the wart. You would do this during the time of the waxing moon or as the moon was beginning to, uh, to become full or just after the new moon, sometimes people would do it. But usually when the mooning was, was waxing, they would rub a potato on the wart and then they would bury it under the drain spout of the house or under the eaves of the roof where water would come down off the roof, hit the potato um, where it was buried. And the belief was it would help the potato to rot away and as it rotted away, it would take the wart with it. Um, and Doc, Doc Brunner, as they call him, was one of those people who not only uh, was a practitioner of conventional medicine of his era, he was also a person who would powwow away your warts. So anything to it? Did it work? Well, I would argue that many examples of powwowing are what we could actually call forms of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, 
empirical medicine in the sense that um, they're empirical because they're based on experience. They're not being tested in laboratories like we would consider scientific or empirical medicine today, but most people would say that their experiences were beneficial to them. Um, I know many people who say, oh, of course it worked to get rid of the warts. I know a handful who said that it didn't, but for most people, they say yes. Um, and there's a, another um, author who's written on powwowing. Uh, he got his doctorate through uh, um, Penn State, and uh, his name is Dr. David Kreeble, and he actually, he did a statistical analysis of informants who had experienced powwowing, and he found that there was like over a 90 percentile um, success rate based on the research he did. So um, he was looking at it from a perspective of complementary and alternative medicine that's still alive in the present day. And generally speaking, um, you find that narratives from the local community support the notion that this is effective. And I always warn people away from worrying too much about our present-day perceptions of effectiveness. Um, I always look at this as a, a culturally specific form of care. Um, and because it's care, um, there's a variety of different outcomes that can happen from care. Um, and I don't think it's always important to look at it based on the same types of, you know, review that we would give a, a medical treatment today. We have to look at it through the cultural lens through which it proceeds in order to be able to understand it. I think understanding it is really the, the key here. You start your book with a disclaimer that says, a caution to the reader, this book gives no medical or legal advice. Absolutely. Um, I stress the notion that over many generations, cultural narratives have woven a rich tapestry of stories and experiences and traditions among the Pennsylvania Dutch that we can learn a tremendous amount from discussing. But we should not look at those as examples of how to treat in the present day. I don't necessarily say in any place in my book, this is what you should do. Instead, my hope is that this cultural exploration will give people an opportunity to examine the breadth of how you find ritual employed for a variety of different types of human difficulties, whether that's ailments for humans or livestock or difficulties on the farm. Um, and, and I don't want people to perceive that this book is giving medical advice, because that is not what it does. We only have a couple minutes left. I want to try to fit in some uh, examples of things. And here's one where uh, an antidote from uh, Lebanon County describes a woman whose bread always seemed to burn, even under her careful watch, and much to her chagrin. The woman believed this was due to a grudge she held with her neighbor. So a dishcloth was stolen from the neighbor's wash line and cut into three pieces. The three holes were three holes were bored in the lintel of the bake oven. A piece of the rag was put into each hole and plugged up. The woman's baking was never again subject to disturbance. Absolutely. You've got an interesting story there. And I love that example because it highlights so many different things about daily life. Um, here you have a situation that required remedy that was not a human ailment per se, um, not, not something that resided in the body per se, but the belief was that in this case there was some form of overarching disturbance that not only existed between two people but resounded throughout daily life. And I focus on this time and time again in my book, is that this is not just something that was done in marginal circumstances. This was something that really was integrated into daily life and perceived to be a good way to handle difficult situations like this person's neighborly dispute. Um, in this case, they're taking something from the neighbor that they're then cutting, cutting into three pieces. The rag was in some way expected to be symbolic of a severing 
of attachment to that grudge and that boring it in the holes of the bake oven was plugging it up and putting it away where it could not be uh, retrieved or put back together or it was, it was an act of finality, so to speak. And the belief was that this had, in a sense, neutralized the grudge. Now, I'll bet that the person who performed that ritual did so under the advice of a practitioner. And this is often the case where you find that practitioners are not just doing things for people, but they might recommend a course of action. And so in this case, this, uh, this individual was going to do this. And I'll bet somewhere in their mind they were also probably thinking, I'm going to get that neighbor, and probably thinking about punishing the neighbor through that cutting of the, of the dishcloth. So we don't really know, but there's a variety of different ways one could look at it. I really, I really think of that dishcloth instead as being symbolic of a severing of the grudge, a, uh, a, a slicing of something tangible as a way to affect something that was intangible. And in this case, the grudge was so powerful that that woman was thinking about it all the time. Because if her bread wasn't rising, if she's perceiving that that grudge is what's causing the issue, then clearly that grudge has a hold on her one way or another. Whether or not it's truly causing the issue with the bread, we don't know. Um, but we do know that this is just one of a number of examples to actually um, cure the household, so to speak, if the bread wouldn't rise. One other way was a positive thing. You'd call the names of three capable women that you know. You would say it into the yeast before you would add the yeast to the dough. And the belief was that it would make that yeast more active because you were essentially invoking these, these capable women. And usually that, that could be three people in the community. Something like that. Um, you can see that these are expressing community bonds. And I think it's really important to look at how these rituals um, allow us to examine all of those different kinds of relationships that exist within the Pennsylvania Dutch community and the fabric of life. I wish we had time to talk about the word abracadabra, which you write about, <laughs> okay, yes. and uh, Sartor Squares. Um, but, but we were almost out of time. But uh, did they use? wands or anything like that? <laughs> well, one of the things I have in this book are examples of ritual objects that were oftentimes very personal. And many times, ritual objects um, would be things that a practitioner might carry with them. And so sometimes this is a Bible. The Bible itself was a ritualized object in the sense that it was used for healing. Um, other times, you'll find that there were carvings or things that were carried on the person or canes. And oftentimes, they don't talk about powwow wands, but they talk about powwow canes. And some of these are plain canes that you would not be able to distinguish from any other cane that the person might use in a healing ritual for striking an illness or for making a gesture. These obviously have some correspondences with what we would imagine for legendary um, use of a magic wand or something, a lot of correspondences. But, but the fact is that they were usually everyday objects that were later essentially employed long enough within a ritual circumstance and then they took on some form of additional power in the eyes of both the practitioner and the person receiving the, uh, the healing. I wish we had another hour to talk, but we are out of time. Our guest has been Patrick Don Moyer. He is the author of this book, Powwowing in Pennsylvania. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.